Good morning and Christian greetings to each of you. It's good to see you here this morning. It's good to see a number of visitors here with us. Trust you can join us in, in worship and as we look into the Word of God together. <clears throat> I'm wondering if you have ever received a letter that is so incredibly encouraging um, at a time when you're facing some difficulties and what that does for you. I believe it's the kind of letter that you probably will read and reread just because of the blessing that it is at a time when you just feel like you need it. Also, it's, it probably will give us new stamina to face whatever lies ahead. And, and life seems better and brighter just because of that. I look at the book of Philippians as a letter like that. It is the one letter from Paul that is distinctly different from all of, the other, all of his other New Testament writings. It's more personal. It doesn't address any big issues. And it's just, it's just more, um, more positive in a lot of ways. And Paul apparently had a unique bond with the Philippian believers, and it comes through as you look at this book uh, as this powerful and encouraging letter. But before we turn to Philippians, I'd like for you to turn to Acts uh, 15. And we're going to think about it a little bit. How did the gospel message even get to Philippi? Um, and so we're going to be looking at some of the context for this. In Acts 15, if you recall, we read about the Jerusalem Council and the agreement to write a letter clarifying their decision about what would be required of Gentile believers, and then they sent this letter out. And in verse 30, we read... That So they were sent off, and we don't know exactly who all this was, but it certainly included Paul and Silas, uh, Paul and Barnabas and Silas. They were sent off. They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And so here I have a map just showing a little bit, giving a little bit of context of what we're dealing with. So Jerusalem's down here. Antioch is up here. And then you jump down to verse 35, uh, it says, but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with so many also. Then, just a couple of verses after this, Paul and Barnabas had their famous, or you might say infamous, disagreement. And it says in verse 39 to 41 that there arose a sharp disagreement so that they, being Paul and Barnabas, separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark, and with him sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commanded by the brothers but to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicily, strengthening the churches. And as you recall, Paul was from Tarsus as well. That was his home city. In, verse, in chapter 16, verse 1, they meet Timothy. And Paul came also from, actually, I'm sorry. Yeah, in verse 1, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. 
a disciple was there named Timothy, and it describes him a little bit. And so they were making quite a journey there uh, across the country there. And uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy continued to visit churches and encourage them along the way. But these were not the Asian churches that they had envisioned that they would be visiting. Uh, they had planned. Rather, he had an unexpected call to go to Macedonia, which is actually the European continent uh, across the Aegean Sea. So in verse 6 of chapter 16, we read that they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, which is really an interesting verse. You may not be able to see, but this is considered Asia, which is western Turkey, and it's within this area where the seven churches in Revelation are all located. And, and so it was a very logical place that they would go there and visit those churches, but they were forbidden to do so. And so they made their way all the way up here to Troas. And um, Ephesus, as you re might recall, was a major port city down here, and it was a, a major city in the area. In verses 8 through 10 of Acts 16, we read then, So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen this vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, um, Macedonia is actually over in here. It's off, uh, off to the northwest there. And so there we see in verse 11 and 12, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which was a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So that is how Paul ended up in Philippi. It was not where he intended to go. It was not what he thought he was going to do when he set out on his second missionary journey, but he followed the Spirit's leading and ended up in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony in Greece. This is actually a modern day, would be in northern Greece today. Located about 10 miles inland from Neapolis, it was located along the famous Roman road. It was a classic Romanized Greek city, including a Roman system of government. Its citizens were Italian citizens, or legal status, and they had certain tax exemptions because essentially, Philippi was a Roman outpost in the country of Greece. Um, they were in two different countries, but it, it was really Roman. Uh, it was a Roman city in a lot of ways. What's interesting also is that most first century inscriptions are in Latin, not even in Greek. And this is in Greece. One commentator described Philippians 
the Philippians as Latin in language, culturally Italian, and politically Roman. And so that was quite a uh, combination of uh, characteristics that they had. There is no biblical record of Jews living in Philippi or of a synagogue being there. So this was a brand new frontier for Paul, for the Apostle Paul, reaching out to a Gentile and pagan culture without that strong Jewish influence and even Jews to connect with. In fact, a bit later in verses 20 and 21 of 16, you would find that their Jewishness, Paul and uh, Silas's Jewishness, is what had them thrown in prison, uh, at least in part. Now, just zeroing in a little bit, identifying some of the other big cities. So I had mentioned Ephesus earlier. Corinth is over here. Thessalonica is another um, fairly major city. Philippi, as a Roman colony, was also a very nationalistic colony. These colonists were proud and loyal Romans. That was their identity. That was who they were. It wasn't a large city, but it was considered significant to the Roman Empire. And it's described as a leading city or a chief city of Macedonia, which is in reference to its um, political clout and importance rather than its size. It was just a dominant city politically. Um, According to historians, it's estimated that Philippi had a population of about 10,000 people in the first century. Now, I was just thinking, okay, to put that into context, what would we compare that to? It's interesting, Warrington had a population of 10,189 people at the end of 2022. So basically the size of Warrington. Thessalonica being about 90 miles to the west, along the Roman road also, which was also in Macedonia, had a population of 10 times that of Philippi, at least. But Philippi's Roman influence was even greater than that of Thessalonica. It was just, it was just they held a lot of clout. Zooming out a bit more yet, this would be kind of the, the world at that time, if you will, um, the biblical world anyway. And Antioch, Ephesus, and Corinth were really the, were even larger than Thessalonica and were considered the major cities of the day. Um, And that doesn't mention that Rome as well, I don't know about its size, but it certainly was the capital of the Roman Empire. And and so it just, this just gives you a little bit of a of a picture of the world and where Philippi was. And so this was the first time there was a church beyond these borders uh, up here in Philippi. Philippi was thoroughly pagan. They disliked the Jews and they disliked the Christians uh, as well later on. It's said that there were as many as thirty five different deities that were worshipped in Philippi. Now in chapter 16 as well, in verses 13 to 15, we read about Lydia, the seller of purple. She was from Thyatira, which is down in here, actually. 
Um, and it says that she worshiped God. But apparently she didn't yet know about Jesus, who was the promised Messiah and redeemer of mankind, until Paul explained that to her, and then she was baptized. After that, we read about the demon-possessed girl, slave girl, that followed Paul around, it says, for many days. I had never noticed that before. This was not just a one-time occurrence, but was, and would be yelling at him or at other people and so forth that these men are from God and they proclaim salvation, which was true, but it was not out of the spirit um, of, of truth or really wanting people to know the truth. But eventually Paul was greatly pained or grieved and commanded that the demon come out of her, and which it did. This angered the girl's owner because he made good money off of her fortune-telling, and that's when they had Paul and Silas drugged before the magistrates, um, or the city officials, and blamed their disruption on being Jewish, on the fact that they were Jewish. They and the crowd had them beaten severely and thrown into prison, their hands and feet put in stocks. This photo uh, shows what is believed to have been the prison cell where Paul and Silas were held at that time. And we know the story. About midnight, Paul and Silas were singing. There was an earthquake. The doors opened. The shackles and stocks were loosed. The jailer assumed the uh, prisoners had all escaped and was ready to kill himself when Paul assured them that they were still there. At that point, the jailer said, I want what you want or what you have. What do I have to do to be saved? And that night, he and his family believed and were baptized. The next day, when the magistrates wanted to brush off their mistreatment of them, basically in letting them go, Paul asserted his Roman citizenship. And that's not coincidental. Think about the context that this was in. The Roman as Roman citizens, you had more rights and had to be treated differently, treated better. But they had beaten and thrown them into prison just assuming they weren't Romans. And that was not the case. And uh, now they were embarrassed or and so forth because they, they treated Romans differently. They treated them right. So this is the story of the start of the church in Philippi. It consisted of Lydia, the jailer and his family, maybe the slave girl. Scripture doesn't indicate whether she was a believer or not or became a believer, and perhaps a handful of others. And the city was not particularly fond of Christians, and they continued to face persecution for their beliefs. But in spite of that, the church grew and prospered and stayed in touch with Paul. Uh, they stayed in touch with Paul by sending financial support to him several times. And Paul developed this deep personal attachment and relationship with these believers in Philippi. Turning over, or yeah, to the letter to the Philippians, um, it's believed that the church in Philippi was started about AD 50. The letter that we have was written 
within the next 10 or 12 years. We don't know the exact date of the writing. It could have been within several years. Paul wrote the letter from prison, but we don't know where he was in prison. Uh, perhaps Ephesus, perhaps Rome. It's not clear from the letter itself. But it is, like I mentioned earlier already, his most personal letter. It's informal. It's positive. It's absent rebuke. It's a simple thank you letter of encouragement. It doesn't focus on or address problems at the church. So in some say, we may draw from that that it was a relatively healthy church compared to some of the other churches. They weren't plagued with the worries and the idleness that affected the Thessalonians. And they didn't have the factions or the immorality that plagued the um, Corinthian church. But it wasn't that things were without a struggle. They, like other Macedonian churches, faced a lot of persecution and hardship, of which Paul also was familiar. <clears throat> it's also interesting that as we read this letter, unlike some of Paul's other letters, like Romans or Ephesians and Galatians, there is no obvious and cohesive theme throughout the book. It feels a little bit more disjointed as you read this. <clears throat> um, some will say that the theme is joy, which I, it's understandable. Joy, rejoice, is used 17 times throughout these four chapters. Uh, Lenski, in his commentary, writes this. Joy is the music that runs through this epistle, the sunshine that spreads over all of it. The whole epistle radiates joy and happiness. And I think that that's a good, a good description. You see that as you read through here. But as I was reading through this book multiple times in, in study, I noticed other key words that I believe are perhaps even more significant or perhaps explain why joy, why, why this joy and happiness radiates from the book. Jesus is mentioned at least 65 times in four chapters, 20 times in chapter one alone. Just again and again, he mentions Jesus. Gospel is mentioned 10 times, seven times in the first chapter. To me, this indicates there's an underlying love and commitment to Jesus Christ as the basis of the gospel, and then this joy, happiness, emanates from that in spite of the hardships that they're facing. It's a deep-seated understanding and conviction of who Jesus is, his preeminence, his humility, his sacrifice for humanity. And then we have the incredibly beautiful and memorable Jesus hymn or poem in chapter 2, which reinforces the centrality of Jesus also that we see in the mind of Paul. Now, this poem, which I think really is central to this book, seems to be a point around which the rest of the letter revolves, although it's not done so clearly in a literary form. But it does seem like that is kind of the basis for it. 
If there is a theme verse, I think it would be verse 21 of verse one of chapter one. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That just sums up the way he thought about it. It's all about Christ. That's all that matters. And there was joy and happiness in the midst of that. Reading verses 1 and 2, we have Paul's greeting. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this letter is from both Paul and Timothy, although it's not evident that Timothy was imprisoned at this time. He was there with him, obviously. But so already in these brief verses, we have Jesus mentioned, I'm sorry, three times. First, as servants of Jesus Christ. Paul and Timothy considered themselves slaves or servants of the Messiah. Now, Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ is not another name. It's a title. It's, he's really, they're really, Paul is really saying Messiah Jesus or anointed Jesus uh, when he says Christ Jesus. There are servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. The saints are the believers, not an indication of their level of maturity or perfection, it's all the saints in Messiah, of Messiah Jesus in Philippi. And then grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul identifies directly with the Philippians by describing God as our Father. He's not saying your Father or my Father, but it's our Father. And then he adds the title Lord or Master or King to the title Messiah, Jesus. Now remember, this was a very loyal and nationalistic Roman colony. Only Caesar was considered Lord in this culture. To call anyone else Lord or Master or King was countercultural and would have been politically offensive. But yet that's what Paul does right here in this greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also interesting that this is the only letter that Paul wrote in which overseers, King James would say bishops or pastors, is mentioned in the meeting. Not uh, in the greeting. Not only are they mentioned, but it's plural. Episcopos is often translated bishop in the King James Version and overseer in other translations, but that is just another name for pastor. I don't believe Scripture teaches that, that it's a hierarchical type of role. It's, it's synonymous with pastor. And so apparently there was a plural pastoral team at this point and more than one deacon involved in the leadership of the Church of Philippi at this time. And so it's just interesting that he uses that, includes that in this greeting. So then following this gracious and heartwarming greeting, 
emphasizing Jesus as the Messiah and Lord, Paul now expresses a genuine fondness and appreciation for the believers in this church. Continuing in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Remember, the first day was there. Well, I don't know what the first day is, but he was referring back to what we read in Acts 16 of the encounter with Lydia, the demon-possessed girl, and ending up in prison there. Paul clearly has a deep affection for these believers, and he regularly remembered them. He thought about them. He prayed for them. And he did so with joy. This is the first that this word appears, but you could already, leading up to this, sense that it's pre- the joy is present even without the actual word. Um, and while the Philippian believers clearly give Paul joy, it goes so much beyond them as people. He continues... Because of your partnership in the gospel. Because of your, the Greek word for partnership there is koinonia, or fellowship in the gospel. We see the joy seeping from this warm letter, but that joy is rooted in something so much deeper and significant. It's rooted in the gospel and Jesus Christ, and the connectedness that comes from a shared understanding of who Jesus is and the power of the gospel from that very first day when they even met. That connectedness, or koinonia, fellowship, participation, partnership, depending on the translation, through the gospel is really what gives Paul this joy. Koinonia is used two more times later in the letter and is probably the word that best describes the deep kinship that Paul had with these believers in Philippi who would grasp the incredible gift of the gospel given to Jesus Christ, given by Jesus Christ, and the joy that results from that. I think, I feel like too often today, fellowship has been reduced to some social interaction of some mutual connection. And that is required for fellowship, but it's so much more than that. It's more than a work environment or a um, homeschool club or you name it, those types of things. It's so much more than that. It's so much deeper than that. It's, it's way beyond a simple, shared, social experience. It is a deeply spiritual connection, common union or communion that one realizes exists because of Jesus and the gospel. It's not about 
personalities or common social interests. That's not what draws it together. It's Jesus Christ and the gospel. For the Philippians in particular, the participation in the gospel also included a financial component in their support of Paul's ministry, that, and we'll see that later in the book. Verse 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that began the good work of redemption and sanctification in these Philippian believers. It wasn't Paul and Silas. It wasn't Timothy. It was Jesus. And Jesus is not the one who quits or gives up after starting something. He's not the one that starts something but then doesn't follow it through to completion. He desires to finish it. He is the finisher and even remember on the cross, it is finished. He will continue sanctifying believers to completion, to the very end. And today, until the day that he returns and takes his bride, the church, home with him to his father. Paul is confident that these imperfect saints in Philippi will continue to mature and grow even though he was in prison. He wasn't able to be there. He was unable to continue teaching them, deleting them, discipling them in any way. But he believed, he had the confidence that Jesus was going to make sure that they continued to grow and mature in their spiritual lives, regardless what happened to him. And then verses 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. These verses just show how much Paul cares for and about these believers. Describes them as fellow partakers. He sees them almost as an extension of himself. And while Paul is in prison himself, Paul knows some of the Philippians have also faced prison and identifies with them in that way as well. As well as their ongoing preaching of and defense of and confirmation of the gift of the gospel that they're also doing. And then he reiterates that he has the affection for them even as Jesus loves them. Which is a pretty strong uh, way of describing that. That he, I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Then he concludes with his prayer. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, 
filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here, Paul is praying and desiring a gift for these Philippian believers and these saints. He wants them to grow in love, to abound in love more and more. What's interesting is that there's no indication that there's any deficiency of love anywhere in this letter. And yet, Paul desires that this continue to grow. We, we will never love enough, if that's fair to say. There's always room for us to abound in love more and more. This growing love must also include knowledge and discernment. And apart from having appropriate knowledge and discernment, we do not, within ourselves, have the capacity to identify or approve what is excellent and what is not. What is inferior, what is counterfeit, and what is true. There's just simply is not a, uh, we don't have a reference point apart from knowledge and discernment that comes through growing in love for each other as well as for God. And the whole purpose of growing in love with wisdom and discernment is for Jesus Christ so that we are pure and blameless sincere and without offense when we meet Jesus face to face. Another way of describing this, as one commentator put it, unalloyed or, and uninjured. Uh, an alloy is a mixture of metals, and, and it's unalloyed. It's pure. It, this area in Macedonia was known for its gold mines, and I suspect it may be a reference to that pure pure gold, but it's not contaminated in any way. And we're to be, we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Not that we achieve, again, that comes through Jesus Christ. Fruit is not manufactured, it is grown. It comes out of who we are not simply what we do. And so this is all about Jesus Christ and the power that we have through him for the purpose of bringing glory and praise to God the Father. I have entitled this message, Joyful Koinonia. While Paul's joy is evident throughout this passage, it is rooted in the kinship and shared understanding of Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. It all comes back to that. Who is Jesus? Who do we see that he is? 
And we're, we, too, are called to cultivate joyful koinonia, not based on social or mutual interests, or not, and not on a fake or superficial emotion, but rather by profoundly seeking a deep kinship and affection that is the natural response and outflow of our love, of our shared love for Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer of mankind, our Lord, Master, and King, and the good news of the gospel. Joyful koinonia was obvious between Paul and the Philippian believers. As Paul prayed for the saints in Philippi, we too should pray a prayer like this for ourselves and for each other in the body of Christ, praying that our love may abound more and more in, the, in knowledge and discernment, that we may approve or embrace what is excellent or superior so that we are unalloyed, pure, void of offense, blameless, when we see Jesus, and that we're filled and overflowing with the fruit of right living, a righteousness that comes through the power of Jesus Christ having control of our lives. All this, not for our own recognition, but for the sole purpose of bringing glory and praise to God the Father. I believe joyful koinonia should be the reality of every believer in every church whose focus is on Jesus Christ rather than ourselves or others. But we're focused on Jesus Christ. It should permeate each of us every single day. Let's stand together for closing prayer. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for this account of the church in Philippi being established, Paul's obedience to you, and then also for um, this letter that Paul wrote out of pure love and joy for the Philippian believers, but, but ultimately out of who, because of who you are and his love for you. And I pray that we would uh, embrace, we would allow uh, our focus to be so on Jesus that these kind of the gospel, that these kinds of things just emanate from us as well, that joy and happiness would just be a part of our life as well. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.